Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. It's hard to imagine how using the same economic and business logic of the past few hundred years can make it possible to suddenly become a sustainable species. As we examine the shortcomings of business as usual, which have developed into an ecological crisis, we begin to think about the prospect of a revolution towards a post-capitalistic system. Our guest today is Frank Rotering, author of a new book, Contractionary Revolution. Frank argues for a series of revolutions to help shrink the economies of bloated, overdeveloped nations like the United States and Canada, a revolution that implements a new economic logic centered around human well-being. And then, because the idea and conversation around a revolution is too big for one single podcast of The Extra Environmentalist, we have a special two-sided episode where side A features our conversation with Frank Rotering, and then on side B, we talk about post-revolutionary Egypt from a cultural outsider's perspective, the mindset of an extra-environmentalist with David Blacker, professor of the philosophy of education and legal studies at the University of Delaware. And we talk about his informed but non-Middle Eastern political expert-based perspective on life during and after the revolution in Egypt and the ideas that inform his views on our failing educational system in his new book, The Falling Rate of Learning. This is episode number 73. I'm Seth Moserkatz. And I'm Justin Ritchie. And this is The Extra Environmentalist. I'm trying to start a movement to contract the world's economies, especially, of course, the richest, most bloated economies, uh, such as ours here in Canada, the U.S., etc. And the main logic behind contractionism is this. If you take a look at the trends over the last few hundred years, you'll see that population, habitat destruction, etc., etc., all rose exponentially in step with the growth of capitalism. So clearly there is a link, a tight link, between the ecological crisis we face and the development of capitalism since about 15, 1600. So I have a very broad brush argument which I'd like to present to your listeners, uh, and then I'll refine that in just a second, okay? So my main argument is this syllogism right here. So two premises, one conclusion. Premise number one is that a capitalist economy must grow. 
Premise number two is that growth is unsustainable. And the conclusion is that capitalism, in some sense, must go. Okay, that is my broad brush argument. Okay, the tight linkage between the capitalist system and the crisis we face, and then its growth dependence, the fact that growth can't continue, as many people have pointed out, and that capitalism must therefore be historically superseded. Now, what that means, we're going to talk about, but that's my basic argument. So I'm going to repeat it once again, because I like people to really get this in their heads before I go on. Capitalism must grow. Growth is unsustainable. Capitalism must go. Now, as I stated, that's a very broad brush argument. It's basically a mnemonic device to remember the basic logic. I'd like to refine that a little bit by making what I think is an absolutely crucial distinction that unfortunately not many people make. And that is between capitalism's economic logic and its institutions. Now, by economic logic, I mean the system's driving force, which determines its outcomes and is responsible for its growth dependence. So by institutions, you mean institutions like, say, an educational institution or our government institutions or our Federal Reserve Bank? The, the latter especially, I mean mainly markets, the money system, laws, and those things you mentioned as well. The education system to some degree. But mainly I'm thinking of money and markets, okay, the basic institutions that allow an economic-like system like capitalism to tick. So I divide capitalism into those two basic components. Again, it's logic, it's driving force, and it's institutions. And my claim is that the logic is historically unique. This arose, again, around 15, 1600, and it depends on this interaction in the market between profit-driven corporations and manipulated consumers. And it's that logic which is responsible for this growth obsession, this growth dependence, as well as the ecocidal logic or results of this system. The institutions, many of them, are historically continuous. In other words, there were markets and money in Mesopotamia in 3500 BC. So to blame the institutions, I think, is off the mark. I think that the root cause of this crisis is the economic logic of capitalism, not the system as a whole. And as we go on, you'll see that that has a tremendous strategic implications. Where did this logic originate from? Is this something that's, that has evolved over time? Yeah, it developed organically as the early manufacturers, you know, at Adam Smith's time and earlier, as they decided that they needed free workers, they needed to interact with these workers and consumers in the market, this logic developed spontaneously to a large degree. Of course, once people became aware, conscious of this developing logic, they streamlined it and refined it, and that's what classical or standard economics is all about. So partly an organic, historical development, and partly, I think, a conscious development as well. So again, with this split, we can now take a look not at capitalism as a whole, but at its separate components. and. My key claim is that this logic, this ecocidal expansionary logic of capitalism must be replaced and as soon as possible. The institutions will definitely have to be modified. Some will have to be tossed. 
and some new ones will have to be introduced. But by and large, institutions, again, money, markets, laws, etc., can be selectively modified and be allowed to evolve. So I should add here that this means that my position is not anti-capitalist. That's too broad. Okay, I don't target the system. I target its logic. However, the logic goes, the system goes. So my position is post-capitalism, not anti-capitalism. Crucial distinction. So one point that's coming up for me as you describe that and say that is that it's not particularly the blame that we place on, say, the Federal Reserve's mismanagement of, say, the current money system that's the issue that you're really targeting. You're talking about the broader logic and framework that these institutions are operating in. The pointing of fingers at one particular, say, president or leader is not really the issue. It's that broader system that sits on top of it. Yeah, that's well said. It is not the Federal Reserve, and it is not the money system. I notice some very good people uh, believe that the money system itself is the problem. I don't share that. Uh, like I said, I think it is that logic, and the money system simply supports that particular logic. When we change the logic, as I'll describe, then the markets and the money system will change. But we don't have to get rid of that stuff. It's just a matter of modifying it to support the logic that we have. And as you say also, Justin, it's not individuals like a President Obama or even a Stephen Harper. It's a much bigger issue than that. So again, to, to get to this issue of capitalism must go and refining that, my key statement, my key claim really, is that the root cause of the ecological crisis is capitalism's economic logic, which, as I said, must be replaced. But that has political implications, which we have to face. If we replace that logic, as I indicated, we are, in fact, superseding the system historically. We are moving historically beyond capitalism. And that, in turn, has a major implication, because capitalism is dominated by a ruling class, that class will not see its system uh, disappear without a fight, so that will be vigorously defended. And I conclude then, irrevocably, I think, that resolving the ecological crisis is a revolutionary task. So while I find many reform efforts to be useful, as I'll explain, I think that we must not avoid the highly inconvenient truth that a revolution, in fact, many revolutions are required to move us into the next stage of history and to allow us to give us at least a chance to salvage what remains of the biosphere. You mentioned green reform efforts. And so part of what we've done on our show and part of what we've discussed on our show is a lot of these various green illusions that we rely on in order to keep the present system going, imagining that we can just run everything that we do right now with solar panels and wind turbines without much of a trade-off whatsoever. And so we've discussed that in detail, but could you kind of draw out that distinction between what you see as a necessary revolutionary movement and green reform solutions that are being proposed right now? Yeah, that, that, that is the term I use in my books, is green reformism. Green because these people definitely want to improve things, reduce our ecological impact, which is quite positive, of course. Reformism refers to an anti-revolutionary attitude, of course. In other words, to maintain this system, this logic, this ruling class, and try to resolve the problem within that scope, which I think is impossible. 
However, we'll be very careful here because I think a lot of people are doing very useful work. So I'd like to make an important uh, distinction here again. I think that resolving this crisis that we're in, this ecological overshoot crisis, requires really three types of work. They're quite distinct. Number one is the reforms like 350.org, fine organization run by Bill McKibben. And if they do their work properly, then they can buy us time with their reforms. In other words, slowing down ecological degradation and perhaps deferring ecological collapse. So I call those buy time reforms, and they're definitely useful. Second, there's a lot of people doing good work with co-ops, with worker-controlled enterprises, with permaculture, with new money systems, etc. And I think that many of those, while they are not revolutionary, will be very useful in the post-revolutionary period. I call that post-revolutionary infrastructure. So there's two types of reform-oriented work, by-time reforms and post-revolutionary infrastructure, which I think are very useful. And then there's the third major type of work, which is revolutionary activity itself. In other words, building a revolutionary movement to get rid of this ecocidal logic that I mentioned. So when I, and I heavily criticize green reformism in my second book, Contractionary Revolution, and in the third edition, I'm going to modify that somewhat based on what I'm saying here. That I think that these reforms, these by-time reforms, this post-revolutionary infrastructure is useful work. If people are not of a revolutionary mindset, if they cannot participate in revolutionary movement, and many people can't, then they should keep doing what they are doing. If people feel they're qualified for a revolutionary movement, they should join that. The main objection, Justin and Seth, that I have with green reformist efforts like 350.org, what David Suzuki and many others are doing, Tim Jackson, etc., is the pretense that this will resolve the problem. In other words, green reformism can be useful, but it will not resolve the ecological crisis. For that, a revolution is required. So I support people who do good work in these first two areas, but who don't pretend that that can lead to the solution. In other words, these people should be aware of revolutionary activity, should support it, even if they can't participate, and then go back to doing their own work without that pretense. But that is unfortunately what is happening a lot. People are claiming that Co-ops, for instance, Garl Perovitz with his co-ops and Richard Wolff with his worker-controlled enterprises, that that is the solution. It's not the solution. It may be useful, particularly in a post-revolutionary situation, but it is not the solution we require. So who do you see leading this movement? You mentioned that the people in charge right now, the current power leadership, is intractable in many ways and would not want to budge on or power controlling, who do you see leading us into this movement? Well, I tend to dismiss the people who are currently in leadership positions because, they, as you say, they're deeply entrenched in that. However, these people, again, the Bill McKibbins of the world, these are talented leaders. But right now, they don't have a coherent plan, a coherent revolutionary plan to look at. 
So I'm in a sense withholding judgment on these people until I can make contractionism more popular, disseminate its ideas more broadly. And then if they reject them, then of course, yes, then I'll have to oppose that. But they may come around and see that, in fact, this makes sense, that this crisis is so serious that we need to move into a new period of history entirely, and they may become a revolutionary leaders. I doubt that, but it is possible, and these people should be given the benefit of the doubt. But in answer to your question, who then, aside from those people, might lead these movements? Well, basically, anybody who's talented, especially with leadership, who understands contractionism well, and who is ready to sacrifice most of their lives to, to pushing this forward. The real problem today is not leaders. There's a lot of talented people around. To me, the magic formula for revolution throughout history has, has been three basic elements. Ideas, leaders, and events. Now, the events have been happening, of course. Ecological degradation, everybody's aware of that. The leaders will arise, I believe, when the ideas are present. Leaders cannot lead without ideas. Their talent is people, strategic issues. Where are we going given a set of ideas? Somebody has to produce the original ideas that leaders follow. And I'm trying to put together those core ideas. My belief and my hope is, my assumption is, that once those ideas are out there, through interviews such as this, my website, books, etc., etc., the leaders will appear. I don't think leadership is the issue. I think the, the, the core issue today is the lack of ideas. Take that Russell Brand interview with BBC, this Jeremy Paxton buffoon. Russell Brand is a very bright guy, clearly dedicated to some kind of revolution. But when he was asked, well, what does his revolution look like? What is the plan? Of course, he had no answer. That's the tragedy today, that people like Brand, who have come around and realized not only that we face ecological collapse, but that capitalism has to be superseded, have nothing to offer in its place. Now, Brand mumbled something about socialism, but clearly he had no answer, and Paxton knew it, and his audience knew it. Just imagine how much more credible Russell Brand would have been if, when challenged, he said, I believe that contractionism is the answer. Here's the website. Here are the books. Here are the ideas. Here's why I think this is valid. That would have been tremendously powerful and perhaps revolutionary in its own right. He didn't have that, and so he couldn't do that. But again, if a Russell Brand mentions contractionism and people start to study that, then as I indicated, I believe the leaders will appear in droves. I think there's a real pent-up demand out there for a coherent plan for moving forward. It's a matter of dissemination of these ideas. It's a matter of getting these ideas into the mainstream or into a place where people can consume these ideas. Is that where we need to be looking at, that, that mode of getting these ideas into a, a place where people can consume them? Yeah, that's, that's my, of course, that's my obsession right now. I spent the last 20 years of my life developing the economic and political ideas, wrote two books about it, which are now in its second edition on my website. So if I've done a good job, I hope I have, 
then I think at least the rudiments of a revolutionary theory are available. And as you indicate, Justin, the task now is for me and hopefully others to disseminate these ideas clearly, to get them out there, and to make the Russell Brands and the Bill McKibbins and the Naomi Klein's of the world make those ideas accessible to them. The books are out there, you're right, but the ideas have not been pervasively spread, and that's my next task over the next few years. So one of the challenges that we see in recognizing that not only are the limits to growth very real and happening, but they're happening right now as economies are breaking down all around us. And we really see it in countries across Europe and even around the world as places like China are facing severe pollution consequences of their rampant industrial growth over the last decade or two. But the question I have is that while the Bill McKibbins of the world, we've brought him up several times today already, definitely understand and have very detailed descriptions of the problems of climate change and how much of a threatening problem it really is. I think that one barrier that a leader like that may have to addressing something that brings on the greater vision that you're talking about of actually actively seeking to shrink the global economy, actually contract it, is that to a lot of people, that's really depressing to actually think that we're moving away from growth, we're moving away from what we've been doing for the last century into another historical period, something where the goal is extremely different. And so who do you think the audience is for an idea like this, because to a lot of people that can be very scary. Yeah, no, it ha well, it has to be the whole populace, of course, or, or much of the populace. One of the main tasks of future contractionary leaders will be to address that depressing problem, and you're quite right. Human nature is probably inherently expansionary. You know, a lot of biologists feel that deeply in our genes there is this urge to expand. We're a biological species. So that has to be countered, and it will be depressing for a lot of people. I don't doubt that at all. So I think one of the key tasks of a revolutionary leader will be to change the vision from what I call the current obsession, which is short-term consumption, to maximization of short-term consumption, to the maximization of long-term well-being. Long-term, of course, implying that future generations are also taken into account, and well-being indicating a broader conception of well-being than simply consumption. So I think people are going to have to be convinced somehow by propaganda, by slogans, by statements, by rallies, by events, that their interests are served not by maximizing their short-term intake, consumption, fun, etc., but by taking the future into account. And also, of course, people are strongly tied to the natural environment. Most people have deeply ingrained a love of nature, of trees, forests, lakes, etc. So I think we have to start appealing to people's deep emotions about nature and about their own and their children's futures. And we have to set that against the rapacious consumption and production of today. And let's face it, that's a sales job. But every revolution is a sales job. You're trying to convince a mass of people that their interests have shifted, that the current regime does not meet their genuine interests, and that we will meet those interests. So to me, it's convincing the populace that their genuine interests don't lie with this short-term consumption, but actually lie with long-term well-being. 
if a revolutionary movement can convince a critical mass of the populace that that is true, then legitimacy will shift from capitalist to contractionist and a revolution becomes a possibility. So I'm wondering where the motivation for this is. I mean, you look at people all over the world, then they look at the United States as, or maybe they, they have looked at the U.S. as a shining example of what they can have if capitalism works for them. They can have that car, they can have, you know, 24-hour electricity, they can have that steady job that's going to bring them lots of economic prosperity. What's going to motivate people to move away from that and towards a different kind of model? Because this model has been sold to us so very well over the past few generations. There's no magic bullet, you know. Uh, all revolutions of the past have faced this same problem. People are used to what they have, even if they're suffering, and it's very hard to move uh, people off dead center. And that's why, again, the third element in my revolutionary formula, ideas, leaders, and events, is events. And today we have events happening in spades. We have ice sheets collapsing, the whole litany, I won't go over it, you know that very well. So when these events happen, when the next ecological catastrophe strikes, we have to have the ideas and the leaders in place to jump on that, okay? And to convince the, the people, the populace, what this means, what this really implies. And I think really that's all we can do. Try to convince them of the value of the future, their own and their children, the value of nature, and utilize events as they occur to make those points again and again. And hopefully, I hate to say this, but as ecological degradation escalates, as the events get even worse, of course that's a catastrophe for us, for the planet, but it is actually a boon politically. We have to exploit those events to the fullest. And right now that is being missed. All sorts of things are happening. In 2012, when the surface of the Greenland ice sheet melted over a period of 24, 48 hours, we had these terrifying pictures in various news media showing this complete melt of this ice at the top surface. That was an amazing event. But again, there were no ideas and no leaders ready to jump on that event and to really make it resonate with the globe's people. And that's what we need. Exploit events as they occur, as they assuredly will. And for that, we have to have the ideas and the leaders at the ready. Right now, we don't. One question I have here is on how adaptive capitalism is. And it seems like capitalism has faced so many crises over the history of the 20th century and even until today that it continually reorganizes and remobilizes in different ways in order to capture people's imagination all again. And that seems to be a really big barrier in even addressing ecological issues like climate change, because where we can look at green capitalism and green growth and realize the issues with that, it really is capturing the imagination of so many people. How do you think that contractionary movement could exist in that kind of environment where it has to constantly fight the adaptation that capitalist thinking will then use in buying out parts of the idea, like in the way that sustainability used to actually mean something and then very quickly it was adapted into a way to sell more products. 
Well, yeah, that, again, that's the very difficult task of leaders is to convince people that whatever adaptations capitalism makes, whatever pretty pictures it paints, whatever comforting stories it tells, at root, it is a lie. The system must expand. Expansion is today suicidal, ecocidal, and it simply is untenable, and we have to move to a new phase of history. You know, you're simply describing the problem that leaders will have, and it's a difficult one, but I think there are enough arguments on the other side to make a compelling case. I mean, the biosphere is, in fact, collapsing in front of our eyes. That is also a fact. You described some of the things that capitalism can do and how it can adjust. It cannot adjust to the fact that, number one, it is growth dependent, it must continue to expand, and number two, that expansion is basically taking the biosphere out from under our feet. And people are starting to realize that. Just yesterday, you may have noticed, there was an article in Common Dreams about a Pew Research poll showing that even people in Oklahoma and Texas now believe 85-86% that global warming is real. You know, the reality of the decline, the ecological decline, is now hitting home to everyone. And by the way, the article continued that these people were convinced not by arguments, not even by science, but by experience. Farmers, ranchers actually seeing the environment degrade in front of their eyes year by year. Those are palpable, profound events that the populace understands, as these polls showed. What is lacking is to take that popular understanding and to transform that into a revolutionary movement. There really is no big problem here with how this appears to the masses. It is exploiting that properly with a proper set of ideas. That's the key today. Ideas and leaders following on those ideas. As you're educating people in this, this new way of thinking, as you're showing people and exploiting circumstances that are happening all around us in the world, that you can't even deny it, and you're pointing and you say, look over here, you can't really make people understand it until they are actually experiencing it, until the actual writing is there on the wall. And in many ways, that's a little bit too late to actually make meaningful changes, to actually prepare for these things. Is there a way to preempt these inevitabilities in a way that we can move people towards the change before their backs are against the wall? Yeah, I, I think the evidence is the answer is no. I like to say idealistically that yes, that we can convince people before these events happen. But I think history shows that people have to be in dire straits before they'll consider a revolution. And it appears that in the current circumstance, the reality is the same. I'd love to think that the United States populace or the Canadian or the French or the British could somehow wake up to this with concepts, with the acceptance of ideas. But that does not seem to be the way that the mass of the people are constructed. So no, I do think that these terrible events have to happen. You're right, it may be too late. You know, that may be the real tragedy of our current situation, is that the events that will trigger mass action will also trigger terminal collapse. If so, well, then that's, that's it. What can I say? The hope is that 
events will trigger a mass response, again, in the presence of ideas and leaders, and we can salvage what remains of the biosphere. And notice, I never claim in anything I say or write that we're going to save the planet, we're going to save the biosphere. The biosphere is obviously degraded as we speak, and that degradation will accelerate. All we can do is salvage what remains if we arrive at a new equilibrium in 10 or 20 or 40 years. So degradation and a far smaller population on the planet are now inevitable. But I think that salvaging of what remains, which is the contractionary goal, I think that is achievable. Because the alternative, although it sounds a bit dramatic, the realistic alternative is Venus. We are headed, uh, under the current situation, current trends, we could very well be headed towards four or five hundred degrees above Celsius in the long term. In other words, turning this planet into a Venus-like environment. This is actually conceivable. And really, I guess at root, my real goal is to avoid Venus and to at least salvage a little bit of this biosphere for a reduced human population. And so as we've been discussing, the importance is to have those ideas that inspire people, that get them to kind of wake up to the reality and realize that there is another way of doing things. So let's dig into some of the ideas. Justin, I'm sorry, I hate to interrupt there, but let's be careful. The formula is ideas, leaders, events. So at this stage, I'm not trying to reach the populace. I'm trying to reach leaders. That's who I'm talking to in this interview. It's not the people on the street. It is highly intelligent, highly motivated, highly talented people who can potentially lead contractionary movements. They're the ones with the people skills, not me. I'm the man with the idea skills, I hope. We need people with real leadership talent to step forward. Those are the people I like to appeal to first. They will appeal to the masses secondly. Sorry to interrupt. Please continue. So the leaders that may be listening to this interview at the moment who would want to be a part of a revolutionary movement or start revolutionary movements in their own countries, what would they then use as the principles and ideas that they would base a contractionary revolution on if it were successful? With respect to economic ideas, so let me just focus on the economics, which we haven't talked that much about. For especially a progressive society, as opposed to a conservative society, and I'll come back to that distinction, but for a progressive society, let's say you and I and Seth, let's say us three, we're the leaders of a contractionary movement in Canada or the US. The economic ideas that we would use to inspire the masses and to develop our post-revolutionary economy, I have produced a set of ideas called the Economics of Needs and Limits, or ENL. That's the topic of my first book. And that describes the economic ideas in quite some detail. What that would do, first of all, I guess the way to start this off is by saying that there is an ethical principle involved here. ENL is based on the following ethical principle, and that is that all human beings, present and future, are of high and equal worth. So that is my ethical stance with respect to an economic framework, and I base all the concepts on that that people are of high value or high worth and therefore should experience maximum well-being, 
that they are of equal worth, hence economic justice must be present, and that the future counts as much as the present, and hence we must take care of future generations with sustainability. So the economic ideas that would drive both a contractionary revolution and organize the society afterwards, again in the progressive context, would be based on that principle. And one of the key things that ENL does is it distinguishes needs from wants. Other people in the past have made that distinction. I make it very explicit. I define those terms and I make it critical, central to my framework. A need is a consumption desire that increases health. A want is a consumption desire that does not. It satisfies our preferences, our desire for fun, for pleasure, for diversity, etc., etc. And I think one of the key organizing principles of a future economy will be that distinction between needs and wants. In the wants category, and I should say that wants are very dangerous. Herman Daly, the ecological economist, uh, recognized that early in his career before dropping the idea. But wants are very dangerous because they are potentially infinite. That, of course, is the problem today. The fundamental problem with capitalism is that it spurs wants and then it produces a satisfied, those manipulated wants. So in ENL, what I do is I distinguish between sanctioned and unsanctioned wants. A sanctioned want is sustainable and is approved by society. An un unsanctioned want is either unsustainable or, for other reasons, not permitted by society. And I think that is a very fundamental organizing principle, socially and economically, that society, and your own efforts of course, will meet your needs and will meet your wants if they are sanctioned but not irrevocably, not inevitably. That is the, the control we have to place on people's appetites if we are to salvage this biosphere. The other thing I should mention is that E&L, the concepts, because they're based on that ethical principle I mentioned, applying those principles leads automatically to economic justice. In other words, the absence of maldistribution for outputs, labor, and wastes. So you asked for bullet points. Well, a contractionary society, if it implements ENL fully, will be equitable, okay, not equal, but equitable. It will certainly be sustainable. The pressure to produce and consume will be far diminished. So although human nature will continue, people will still be quarrelsome and want certain things and exclude others, it will be a a quieter, more, I think, peaceful existence for most people. I think they'll be more satisfied with it. Competition will still be there, but it will be much reduced. Basically, in a contractionary society, all those elements of human nature that capitalism had to amplify, again, greed, acquisitiveness, competition, etc., all those stressful things will subside. Human nature will still be there, I think that's irrevocable, but these inflammations, these capitalist inflammations will die down and we will have a, again, a less stressful, less competitive, more sensuous society, if you will. An excellent example of this, by the way, is Ernest Kallenbach's Ecotopia, 
very short novel. I recommend it to everybody. Colin Beck was an engineer, but he had great social vision. He didn't have any political understanding, but he did have a good cultural and social understanding. And he describes a future ecological society very well. And to me, it sounds very much like a future contractionary society. And by the way, Justin, if you want to appeal to people, one of the points that Colin Beck makes is that with more time for people to spend, more leisure time, less stress, less competition, etc., people tend to become more sexual and express their sexuality more openly, more overtly, more expansively. And I think that's a key insight, and I think that is a promise that populists will understand clearly, and one that we should use. Right now, it's really tough to, except in certain personal, private environments, it's very hard to express yourself, to express your emotions, to be deeply emotional. People are very controlled, they're constrained. They've been reduced to basically productive and consumptive beings. And once that goes away as the primary motivations of life, then other things that people have in them, but are typically repressed, they tend to come out. So people, like where I'm living, for instance, it's not an urban environment, it's a rural environment where most people know each other, and life is a bit slower than in the big city, and the relations between people here are completely different from those I encountered in Vancouver. And as I encounter anywhere in the world in a large city, because the pressures, the capitalist pressures here are much lower. So even though I'm not a very sociable person, here I have friends and I know people and I can express myself much more fully than I could back in a big metropolis. I think a sort of change will take place under contractionism, but it'll be social, not just a small area like where I live. Next, I wanted to ask about the ongoing uprisings and riots that we see around the world currently. It seems like for the last few years, ever since the uprisings in Spain in 2011 and in Egypt and around the world with the Occupy movement, it seems like people are beginning to understand the level of uprising that's necessary to deal with the ongoing economic crisis, with the level of inequality in society. And some of them are making the connection to the broader climate change and ecological devastation that's going on. But do you see the ongoing uprisings in these places as something like the beginning of a contractionary revolution like you're talking about? Or would they need to be adapted significantly or a completely different movement need to arise in order to implement this contractionary goal? Yeah, I think the latter. I don't see the current uprisings, which are basically spontaneous uprisings against plutocracy, against obscene inequalities, and tremendous unfairness, of course, with these austerity programs in Europe. But no, I see those as very similar to Occupy. I mean, what was Occupy? It was basically, to my mind at least, a spontaneous uprising based on the, really, the last 30 or so years since the mid-70s, when basically capitalists decided to claw back the gains that workers had made since the Second World War and, you know, decrease wages and trash unions, etc., etc. So, again, tremendous inequality in the United States that led to these more or less spontaneous uprisings. The austerity rebellions in Europe seem to be of the same kind of flavor. Spontaneous, well within the current ambit of political thought, no question really about capitalism, just a fair form of capitalism. So, no, I think contractionary leaders will have to arise and will have to take that energy that 
revolutionary energy, if you will, and divert that, sublimate that into a contractionary direction. And I think that's quite possible. I don't have any doubt that a talented leader in Greece or Spain or wherever else could see this inequality, could see the extraordinary anger seething among the populace and could say, we have to change our entire social direction. And it's not to a more fair form of capitalism with more growth, which is simply going to destroy our environment. It is a contractionary economy with more fairness, with more equity, with less stress, possibly less but more equitable consumption, etc. So it is quite a different vision and a different direction. But again, revolutions take the events and the energies as they find them. You know, what led to the Russian Revolution? Well, one could argue the First World War, which just appalled the Russian people and slaughtered the Russian soldiers, and the Bolsheviks took advantage of that. Now, the First World War had nothing to do with Bolshevik ideas. But again, the Bolsheviks were politically sophisticated and used that tremendous event to spawn their revolution. I don't see why these austerity-based rebellions in Europe can't be used by a talented leader to spawn contractionary revolutions. Given that the planet is being destroyed, given that there is economic disparity of a huge degree, what are you saying? There's no alternative. There's no alternative. No, I'm just not saying system. that. I'm saying if you Brilliant. can't be asked to vote, why should we be asked to listen to your political point of view? You don't have to listen to my political point of view, but it's not uh, that I'm not voting out of apathy. I'm not voting out of absolute indifference and weariness and exhaustion from the lies, treachery, deceit of the political class that has been going on for generations now, and which has now reached fever pitch, where we have a disenfranchised, disillusioned, dis respondent underclass that are not being represented by that political system, so voting for it is tacit complicity with that system, and that's not something I'm offering up. You don't believe in democracy, no, you want a revolution, don't you? The planet is being destroyed, we are creating an underclass, we are exploiting poor people all over the world, and the genuine legitimate problems of the people are not being addressed by our political class. All of those things may be true. They are true. I'm merely pointing out that the You're current... You're calling for revolution. Yeah, absolutely. I'm calling for change. I'm calling for genuine alternatives. There are many people who would agree with you. Good. The current system is not engaging with all sorts of problems. Yes. And they feel apathetic. Mm. Really apathetic. Yes. And, but if they were to take you seriously and not to vote... Yeah, they shouldn't vote. Uh, they should, that's one thing they should do. Don't bother voting. Because then when it reaches... There's a point. So these little valves... These sort of like little cosy little valves of recycling and Prius and like you know turn up somewhere. It stops us reaching the pit point where we think, oh, this is enough now. Stop voting. Stop pretending. Wake up. 
being reality now. I say when there is a genuine alternative, a genuine option, then vote for that. But until then, don't bother. Why pretend? Why be complicit in this ridiculous illusion? Because by the time somebody comes along, you might think it worth voting for. It may be too late. I don't think so, because the time is now. These movements are already occurring. It's happening everywhere. We're in a time where communication is instantaneous, and there are communities all over the world. The Occupy movement made a difference, in, even if only in that it introduced to the popular public lexicon the idea of the 1% versus the 99%. People, for the first time in a generation, are aware of massive corporate and economic exploitation. These things are not nonsense. And these subjects are not being addressed. Russell Brand, you say you want a revolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. You say you've got no solution. Well, you know, there's already a plan that takes money and power from those who hate and gives it to those who will no longer wait for you to cogitate, agitate, and debate whether or not wristbands and hashtags oh so quaint can stop the plunder and pillage by the con man, hucksters and banksters backed by the state it's called Bitcoin, mate. There's your revolution. Every day, Americans are bombarded with headlines about how their government is spying on, regulating, or downright seizing their property. As a result, more and more people are finding ways to revolt. Only this time around, instead of banding together in an organized militia, Americans are revolting by disbanding from modern society. Case in point, a group of hacktivists is revolting against the NSA's commandeering of the internet by building a new one from scratch. The project is called MeshNet. It's now raising funds to help distribute routers to help more people connect to the second government-free internet. It's a pretty complex endeavor, to say the least. But the fact that people are willing to go to that extreme to revolt against government internet spying is pretty telling. Another current example of revolt is the Occupy Money Cooperative, an offshoot of the Occupy Wall Street movement. It's backed by bankers who are fed up with the corrupt banking system that the government is in bed with. They're starting out by issuing a prepaid bank card to people who want to stay out of the current financial system. Eventually, they plan on offering a full range of banking services. People are also revolting against our over-regulated agriculture industry. They are sick of being fed crap like Monsanto's frankenseeds and high-fructose corn syrup. As a result, more people are starting small farms where they can grow and eat food that hasn't been processed by the government. The Free State Project is a group of libertarians revolting by moving to New Hampshire to make their own limited government paradise. And of course you have people setting up alternative currencies like Bitcoin or Litecoin. You could say we are now seeing the beginning of the American Revolution version 2.0. Do you see any of Remember that? Yeah, totally. There's going to be a revolution. It's totally going to happen. I think not, not only I, I ain't got a flicker of doubt. This is the end. You are listening to Extra Environmentalist episode number 73, and today we're speaking with Frank Rotering about a contractionary revolution.
you think that the contractions in Europe are a breeding ground for these kind of movements that you're speaking about, this revolution, this contraction? If the ideas are out there and if the leaders respond, spontaneously nothing will happen except spontaneity. An Occupy movement that blossoms, lives for 18 months or two years, and then basically dies. This is a tragedy. Occupy was inspirational in some ways. It showed that energy was there, which is great and very promising. But as a structure for social change, I think it was a disaster and no model to be followed. Purely spontaneous, no leadership, no strategy, no deep ideas. This is not the way. Where do you see the revolution beginning? Where do you see the, the start of it coming from? Is it going to be within the United States or is it going to be somewhere else? The United States is very difficult because there are legal constraints against revolution, against organizing, against even publishing, even on a website, which is, by the way, why I avoid it. So the United States is a difficult case. I think actually Europe and Canada, possibly Australia, New Zealand, don't know much about those. But I think it's going to have to be in the advanced capitalist countries outside the United States, if we're talking about the trigger, the starting point. And that's why I, as a Canadian, feel a special responsibility to this, because I'm very well placed. I'm in Canada, legally, constitutionally, I have more liberties to pursue these ideas. And of course, we are rich up here and over-consuming. We're way beyond our ecological footprint by a factor of about four. So we need a contractionary revolution, and probably in the world, we are near the top in the possibility of the same. So we Canadians, I think, have a global and historical responsibility. You can look at what's going on in, in the world right now, and for the last few years, there has been this extreme level of austerity that's been going on in European countries. And for a lot of people, it has led to tremendous amounts of unemployment, rapidly increasing suicide rates, really horrific social consequences because the economy isn't growing. Now, do you think that some people in these countries who are living in this environment would then potentially see a movement that actively seeks to contract the economy as a threat, as a continuation of this view? Because even though I completely agree with you that the way forward is in shrinking the size of the economy and developing an economy that doesn't have to grow, that's actively shrinking, is the thing to do. But I also see the barrier that a lot of people are going to have towards accepting something like that. Well, you're absolutely right. There's absolutely no question about that. And I come out of the working class. I've been a carpenter. I've been laid off because of slow economic growth. And I felt the pain in my stomach that I can't feed my family. I understand this pain. It's profound and it's real. And any contractionary leader would have to also empathize deeply with workers and, again, explain clearly that contraction will not happen if it hurts you. We're not going to lay you off or permit you to be laid off if it means that you can't feed your family properly or survive or cause you undue stress. So contraction, this is post-revolution now, not the movement itself, but post-revolution, contraction will be fair in that sense. If it hurts workers, it will not happen. That is an absolute condition and commitment of this potential movement. Now, 
your question was prior to the revolution in a revolutionary movement will it be difficult to convince the populace to say goodbye to growth and the answer is again yes definitely all I can say is that we, the leaders, again, these have to be talented people. They have to explain clearly that what we are planning is not a no-growth capitalist economy, which is a disaster for workers, but a contractionary economy, which has a rational plan for that contraction, in which they are considered as full human beings deserving of employment, income, and security. And again, that is a, a difficult sales job, but that is one that leaders will have to pull off. That's simply their responsibility. So let's say that a revolution or a contractory movement does break out or gets underway in Canada, somewhere in Canada. How would the United States react to it? Would they paint them as terrorists or send close the border, shut off trade, maybe send a drone or two because it's a threat to the United States? We can't sugarcoat this process. We are countering very powerful entrenched interests, and they will obviously react well before revolution takes place, as the movement begins, perhaps as we speak now. I don't know. Again, that is something that every revolution faces, Justin. There is no magic answer to these things. We have to react the best way we can. I suspect they will perhaps annex Canada. They will undoubtedly invade Canada. All we can do is defend ourselves the way Cuba has in the past, call for international assistance, appeal to the mercies of humankind, basically, as the American colonists did before the American Revolution. You do what you can, and the odds will be great. We may get beaten. We'll have to try it again in a decade or two. We may inspire others in our defeat. But that's the nature of fundamental social change. You try, you stand up, you get shot. Somebody else tries to go further. This is war and war as casualties. I wanted to talk a little bit about the power structure here and how you see those power dynamics playing out because what you are talking about is the need for revolution simply because the alternative to the growth-based capitalist system, the capitalist system that requires growth to exist, is simply too strong for the power structure in order to develop an alternative. So could you talk a little bit about the power dynamics that are at play and how they reinforce the system? So basically you're asking about the way power is maintained in a capitalist society, is that correct? Right, yes. Yeah. Again, let me put in a plug for my book. <laughs> Again, the title of the main book is Contractionary Revolution, and in chapter three, which is titled Power, I discuss this and I propose a model. And to summarize that, I see power in a capitalist society maintained, broadly speaking, by what I call a democratic illusion. And that's basically the main stratagem used to keep us from revolting. And the democratic illusion is basically the false idea that the populace, through its government, rules this society. My claim is that that is not true and that it is the capitalist class through its state that rules society. So the number one way that they maintain power is by repeatedly, repeatedly emphasizing this democratic illusion. So everybody who speaks publicly, everybody in the capitalist media assumes that government is the center of power. It is not the center of power. The state is the center of power, and it is run by the capitalist class, not by us at our voting booths. 
So that's the broad statement, the democratic illusion. More specifically, in my power model, I distinguish between legitimacy, which is voluntary support for the ruling class, the capitalist class, and coercion. And I see legitimacy maintained, so again, this voluntary support by three means. Number one is what I call functional success. They meet our needs, our wants, our desires, and they do, to a large degree, so that has to be confessed. Number two is fear. They scare the shit out of us. 9-11 is a prime example. There are many others. And manipulation. They deceive us. They propagandize us. And through those three means, success, deception or fear, and manipulation, we more or less voluntarily support them. And then people who fall outside that, people who insist on opposing this rule despite that, those mechanisms, of course, they fall back on coercion. And coercion has two aspects to it, the physical, they imprison you, they torture you, they kill you, and the psychological. They shun you, they strip you of your status, they fire you, they reduce your salary, or whatever. So those are the two basic mechanisms, and this is not just for capitalism, by the way. This comes straight from Machiavelli back in the 1500s. This is simply the way all political power is maintained, through legitimacy if possible, through coercion if necessary. So those are the two main major means. And then there are some instruments that are used. And the instruments basically are, I won't go into the details, but are mainly the state and the government. The state to actually provide that coercion, to actually run this society in the interest of its ruling class, and the government, yes, to do some useful things, no doubt, I don't dismiss government entirely, for sure, but with respect to power as an illusion. Again, that we are in charge. We elect these people, we elect Stephen Harper, therefore Stephen Harper is the power in Canada. They elect Obama in the United States. Obama holds the power in the United States. Not true. Again, the democratic illusion is paramount in all this. So just to re recap briefly, uh, Justin, um, again, number one, the democratic illusion is fundamental. In the power model, number one, I have legitimacy and coercion. And among the instruments of power, I have the state and the government, and also, by the way, the deep state, which I believe pulled off 9-11, etc., and the capitalist class itself, which is an instrument in its own power. Anyway, chapter three of my book has a nice explanation of all this and a good diagram to explain more graphically. Do you see a difference in these power models in a change when and if contraction would happen? To some degree, but like I did mention that power is power to a large degree, and a contractionary state, a contractionary regime, would have to use some of these same methods. I just wrote an article, which will be up on my website shortly, on the NSA and surveillance, and I asked rhetorically, would a contractionary Canada conduct surveillance on its citizens? And the unfortunate conclusion is, yes, it would. A contractionary group or class, if you will, has real and potential enemies and surveillance is required to keep tabs on those people. So I state in the article that surveillance is not a capitalist invention. It is necessary for power, any sort of power, anywhere, anytime in history. So 
Will some of these things continue in a contractionary world? Yes, they would. It's unfortunate, but it's the way the world unfortunately works. So yeah, there would be surveillance. The deception and fear hopefully would be radically reduced and maybe eliminated. Some things could perhaps go by the board, but still, again, to conduct power, you have to think like a powerful group. And that requires some kind of propaganda, some kind of surveillance, unfortunately. There's so many trends that are playing out around the world that have so much momentum around them that are hollowing out the state, the neoliberalism, the financialization, the tremendous amounts of public debt. Would a revolutionary movement for economic contraction using the ideas and the, and the logic of economics of needs and limits like you're talking about just end up leading to a total breakdown of the state because the state is weakening potentially that a revolution would just simply accelerate that breakdown and lead to more chaos than any sort of power that could be exercised necessarily. You wouldn't even be able to potentially exercise any power to contract or grow the economy because it's just in a state of chaos. Well, yeah, any revolution happens when, of course, the current state is in a crisis, whether because of war, because of internal dissent, or because of a powerful revolutionary movement or a combination of the above. So I think the chaos in the current capitalist state in the various countries, some of it, of course, is spontaneous. Uh, some of it is because of ecological degradation, increased inequality and the resistance to that through Occupy, etc. And yes, a contractionary movement would seek to exacerbate that, not to produce chaos, but to replace that state with a contractionary state. So yeah, we would take advantage of the current dissolution or decay or chaos, as you call it, and we would seek to speed that up. But again, the point is not the chaos itself. That is something to be avoided, but it's a transition that we'll probably have to go through. Again, my, my main example is the Bolshevik Revolution. It comes closest in many respects to what uh, contractionism is trying to do. Again, there was a capitalist class there and many other uh, similarities. And there too, again, there was a crisis within the state. There was no cooperation from state agencies after the Bolsheviks took power in 1917. All that had to be reconstituted. Same thing with the French Revolution. There was chaos for decades after 1789 and a tremendous struggle between the monarchists and the republicans to reconstitute the state on a sound basis. So I think that that chaos at the state level, because that's the locus of power, is inevitable. It's inherent in a revolutionary situation. So then, in many ways, the rise and fall of civilization, of empire, is just a human cycle. It's a cyclical thing that just happens over and over again. What you're describing is just that next cycle. Is there a way to break out of this cycle, a way to, to have a human civilization without the need for empire and for huge amounts of power conglomeration at the top? Well, I like what you said initially. Yeah, I think you're right. I wouldn't call it a cycle, but there definitely there is a period of stasis typically in a society, and then conditions change, people change, and then there is a revolution, and hopefully that leads to a better world. Of course, it doesn't always happen. So I think revolutionary change, although it's alien to us, is part and parcel of history. You might say as American as apple pie, it is as real and as common as can be in history. It's not an unusual thing, and it's striking to me that people recoil against this idea. 
Capitalism has been around for a couple of hundred years in its consolidation phase, and it's been around roughly for about 500 years in total. So half a millennium out of human history, it's almost nothing. So yeah, things change. Capitalism probably had to succeed feudalism to increase production, to increase well-being. And now contractionism has to supersede capitalism for obvious ecological reasons. Now your question is, I think, is contractionism a permanent thing or can something like it be a permanent feature of human life? And the answer is no. In a few hundred years, if contractionism succeeds, likely something else will have to succeed it. This is a continual process. Revolution, stasis, revolution, stasis. The current period is revolution. But no, things will always change. So it's nothing to be afraid of. This is something that happens continually throughout human history. This is something that we should be looking forward to and embracing instead of... Well, it, it's difficult, obviously. It's, it's highly disruptive. There's no question. And the people who live through revolution tend to suffer. That is clear. The Russian Revolution, French Revolution, even the Cuban Revolution, you can look at them. The people who engage in it, it's difficult for them. And the consolation is that you are aiming for a better world. And in our case, in our extraordinarily exceptional case, we are aiming for a livable world. Not just a better world in terms of social and economic justice, but actually a biosphere that provides habitats for our and other species. I mean, this is an extraordinary cause, unique in human history, unique in the planet's history. Yeah, I expect to suffer in coming years, and I expect others to do so as well. But look at the aim. The aim is to salvage the natural living world, including human beings. What greater cause can there possibly be? So it seems to be quibbling to say, oh, it's going to cause some discomfort, revolution, oh God. Well, yeah, but look at the aim, look at the cause, look at the necessity. To me, it's overwhelming. Yeah, now what you're talking about is taking a step back and looking forward and looking at the intractable nature of power in our society and what needs to happen to actually move on to this different track where we do salvage the biosphere and the potential for human life on this planet. And it seems to me that a lot of intellectuals in society should be able to take that step back because that's the role that they supposedly have in our society is to take that step back and think about these things and try to see how it plays out. And yet so many of today's intellectuals just support the status quo. They don't even let anywhere close to the ideas that you are discussing enter into their dialogue. Why is that the case? Yeah, I'm glad you raised that, Justin, because this has bothered me, well, for the last 20 years, really, since I started this. I've just been astonished at the inertia of these people. When I first came out with The Economics of Needs and Limits, I bought 50 books from Lulu.com, and I sent them around to various people. Uh, again, the Bill McKibbins of the world and many others, Herman Daly, a lot of people. And except with one minor exception, the response is dead silence. Nobody cares. More recently, up until a couple of years ago, I corresponded heavily with Tim Jackson, the author of Prosperity Without Growth. And he's a very, very bright, knowledgeable guy, very caring about the environment, no question about that. But he will not even consider the possibility that capitalism has to grow. It just is anathema to him because it has revolutionary implications and he just won't go there. 
All I can say is that in the Russian Revolution, John Reed, the journalist, wrote a tremendous book, which I recommend to everyone, called uh, Ten Days That Shook the World. And he too saw that same trend, intellectuals deserting the revolutionary movement, especially as the Bolsheviks came closer to actually seizing power. During the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s, George Orwell was appalled at how the intellectuals concocted false propaganda stories, how they twisted the facts to support the fascist regime of Franco. And he came to a conclusion that I have to follow. I can't do any better than Orwell. He said in his essay, Reflections on the Civil War in Spain, I believe it is, he said, these are all people with something to lose. And it seems like a crude and simplistic explanation, but I think it is true. Intellectuals today are pampered. They have uh, very comfortable academic positions. They have high status in society. They have an easy life. They formed all their opinions and views and concepts during the expansionary era. They seem to be wedded to that. They don't want to let go of their comforts. And they are a negative force. There's one more comment on this. Initially, like about seven, six, seven years ago, I thought that our salvation, in fact, ran through the intellectuals. And as I indicated, I aimed my economics at intellectuals. I became disgusted, as John Reed did, as George Orwell did, and I now see those people as uh, largely, not exclusively, but largely as counter-revolutionary elements, and I don't see much change in that. So I don't think we need intellectuals, really. I think we need talented leaders who are intelligent and who can master revolutionary theory and lead the populace. Now, how are these ideas different from, say, what ecological economists are developing with an idea of a steady-state economy or the idea of degrowth? Where would ideas of contractionary revolution succeed where those ideas may have limitations? Uh, well, first of all, ecological economics, one of my favorite topics, is largely based on capital's logic. Herman Daly and others have said explicitly that the axioms of economics don't have to be changed or trashed. All we need to do is set ecological limits on those. So ecological economics seeks to retain this system, but to make it sustainable. Basically, ecological economics in practical terms is sustainable capitalism. I don't believe that's possible. I believe that's a contradiction in terms. As indicated earlier in the interview, capitalism is dependent on growth and trying to meld sustainability with that dependence is simply impossible. So ecological economics in a pre-revolutionary situation, I think, has a very negative influence in steering people, especially intellectuals, away from a revolutionary perspective. However, however, in a post-revolutionary situation, I see this changing dramatically. One of the interesting aspects about contractionism is that it embraces both progressives and conservatives. Now, that's a whole other discussion, Justin. We probably don't have time for that, why I say that. But if conservatives 
go through a contractionary revolution, they will likely not want to implement ENL, which requires extensive state regulation of the economy. They will want a more libertarian economy, and there ecological economics may fit the bill. So in a post-revolutionary situation, I see ecological economics possibly forming the basis for a conservative contractionary economic theory. I wanted to ask and play devil's advocate and ask if a revolution is really necessary. What we see around the world with the level of extreme unfettered capitalism is that it really is causing economies to fall apart and there's massive amounts of vehicle manufacturing overcapacity in places all across Europe. I was reading the other day that there's 18 vehicle manufacturing plants worth of overcapacity because the whole system has contracted so much there that greenhouse gases in Europe and in the U.S. are on the decline. Are we already on the path to contraction? Would the ideas of contractionism necessarily get us there any faster? Well, yeah, you're talking about contraction, possibly. I'm not sure I believe you about overall global economic contraction, and certainly environmental impacts are still skyrocketing. But even if it were true, let's say that that a capitalist economy shrunk by 2% a year for a while. Well, that's a depression, of course. That's not contraction in the way I describe it. That is a depression, and that's something quite different. I mean, if you'd asked me in the 30s, at the start of the Great Depression, you know, look, you know, factories are shutting, people are being laid off, the contraction revolution has started, wouldn't you find that laughable? Well, it's the same thing here, isn't it? What you're talking about here is a shrinking capitalist economy. And that's a tragedy for many people. And of course, growth will restart as soon as it can, as it did after the Great Depression with the Second World War. So no, I don't see shrinkage under capitalist conditions having anything whatsoever to do with rational contraction in a post-revolutionary situation. They're completely distinct. All right, excellent. How can people find out more about Contractionary Revolution? How can they find your site, your book, and your thinking? The website is needsandlimits.org. And the two books, The Economics of Needs and Limits and Contractionary Revolution, are on that website. They can be freely downloaded in PDF form. And by the time this interview comes out, very likely we'll have the electronic versions available for Kindle, etc. There's also podcasts, articles, and videos on that website. We're just starting with that. That'll grow rapidly over the next year or so. Again, needsandlimits.org. When a lot of people think about revolution, it is, of course, they think about the extraordinary social disruption this entails. And they're right. And hence, revolution should be avoided if at all possible. My claim is that it's not possible today. But this issue about social disruption, I think I should address. I think it's uppermost in most people's minds. And I would argue that today, extreme social disruption is impossible to avoid. Either we follow business as usual, and we have disruption from ecological decline, people escaping floods and heat and bugs and God knows what else, desertification, habitat destruction. So either we have that, a non-revolutionary social disruption, and then ecological collapse, or we have revolutionary disruption and a chance to save the biosphere. The choice is not social disruption or not. 
The choice is between social disruption that leads nowhere except calamity and social disruption that gives us a chance to move forward into a sustainable world. You've reached the end of side A of episode number 73 of The Extra Environmentalist. Please turn the tape over to continue listening to The Extra Environmentalist. Side B contains our conversation with David Blacker on the falling rate of learning. was built around the idea that the number 350 meant climate safety. In order to preserve a livable planet, scientists said that the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere had to be at 350 parts per million. The movement has failed. There are now 400 parts per million in the atmosphere, and that number is rising. That's why we're launching the new 10trillion.org the maximum size of the global economy that can support human life on the planet. 10trillion.org promises to shrink the economy from its original 84.97 trillion down to a manageable 10 trillion. At this number, the world is sustainable. Our global economy of more than $80 trillion threatens life on this planet. The number that means climate safety and human survival is 10 trillion. Whether this means burning money, we don't care sequestering money under the ocean. We were gonna use these tubes for carbon capture and sequestration, but now we're just piping money under the ocean. We didn't say it's going to be easy, but together we're committed to making 10 trillion the number that everybody remembers. The movement is rising from the bottom up all over the world, uniting to create solutions for a better future for all. Trillion